Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor, Archer Bui. Hey, everyone. HT, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've um, just arrived back in the States. Yes. So I had a, a very quick jaunt from where I live in North Florida down to Orlando this past weekend to see my favorite band, The Midnight, in concert. Uh, my sister joined us. My wife and I drove down there and got to stay with my sister for a night and uh, and see her family and her cats and everything and all of that. So it, it was great. And the, the concert ruled. But you had a very long and, and um, <laughs> much further trip. So you went to friggin' Paris. It's pronounced Paris. Perry. Oh, excuse ben. me. Yes, of course. <laughs> no, yeah, I was in Paris for about eight days. I went on a trip with my mom. It was a mother-daughter trip there. We'd planned it a couple months ago, and we weren't sure if it was going to happen because of the Omicron wave and then, you know, get gestures at everything. But we already paid our tickets. We decided to go. And um, this is my first time in Paris in, I want to say, 16 years because the last time I was there, I was about, yeah, uh, 14 years old um, and um, was not able to drink back then. And now I can. So you can imagine what this trip was full of. <laughs> <laughs> Whole different experience. Yeah. So because I had been to Paris a couple times before, mostly for family related, related gatherings slash weddings, uh, my mom and I decided to forego any sort of touristy things. The only touristy thing that we did was take a brief trip to Normandy. Uh, where we did a um, a tour of some of the landing beaches from D-Day. We did uh, Omaha Beach specifically. Uh, and we went to, went to um, Mont Saint-Michel, which is a monastery that is on this sort of cliff or like a uh, – I guess it's like almost an island in a way, at least at high tide when it when the waters come in. But otherwise, at low tide, it, be- it becomes – you can like walk across the sand dunes. Oh yeah, I think I've seen pictures of this on Instagram. Is it like a big Instagram hotspot kind of thing? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it is an Instagram hotspot. It's a, it's a, it's generally a photographic hotspot because it's such an interesting phenomenon, and they built it on this basically like this hill that becomes an island at high tide, um, and it's 
beautiful and gothic and very just transporting to, just to be there. It was also very cold. When I went to Paris the first weekend, it was like in the 60s, almost 70 degrees at some points. Uh, and I was like, this is great. I, I packed perfectly for this weather. And then I went to Normandy and I was like, this is very cold. And then I came back to Paris after that and it dropped down to like the 30s and then it snowed on my last day. Wow. <laughs> but so I think um, Harris was glad to be rid of me. But I was happy to be there. I ate. I drank a lot. Um, yeah, I just walked around uh, various parts of Paris. We stayed near uh, Rue Montargueil, which is sort of this famous market street. Uh, you can walk around there, sit at cafes. People watch, go to like markets that are dedicated to various various items and uh, buy lots of pastries, which I did. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I walked around the Louvre a couple times. I've been there already before, so I didn't really need to go in, but it's always fun to just go at night um, and to see like the little p glass pyramids that they have, which light up. Um, yeah, it's it's a wonderful city. Uh, actually, less dirty than I remembered, because I remember when the first time I went there, I was shocked at how dirty it was because there was dog poop everywhere. But I think there was some sort of initiative to clean up the dog poop huh. um, because I'm now used, or maybe I'm more used to dog poop being on the streets everywhere, having lived in New York. Uh, now there's just pigeon poop everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, beautiful, 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 beautiful city. Um, I love it. My, my mom has been going back like every few years and I finally got to tag along this time and maybe I'll be able to go back again and just do even more things um we went to the um I'm just like rambling because I just remember no it's I great I love it I'm like soaking it up because I've been crammed you know like cooped up in my house for so long yeah no it was great I mean it's very funny there too because um their masking policies have been revoked but everyone is vaccinated in Europe at least as far as I know so everyone was pretty unconcerned it was very very crowded it was the most people I've been around in a long time mm -hmm. so that was like that was a new experience um but yeah we uh went to uh the opera house there which and went to see a, a ballet there which was really great it's a beautiful opera house it's where phantom the opera takes place oh wow so uh was it or it was inspired by at least i think actually it does take place there and seeing inside you kind of is imagine why it took place there it's just so grand and beautiful and um lustrous mm -hmm. um and yeah did, did a couple other things walked around notre dame which is still in the verge of being in the process of being uh renovated slash reconstructed after the fires um i went to the royal shakespeare uh company bookstore which was something i wasn't interested in you know, when I was a child, but I was very excited to go to this time around because it's where Before Sunset uh, takes place, at least the beginning of Before Sunset. And I was very excited to take pictures there and to go inside, of which there's a long line because it's pretty famous outside of Before Sunset for being one of the few sort of English-speaking bookstores in Paris. So it's got quite a, a line of tourists around it all the time. But they were selling the Before Sunrise, Before Sunset screenplay in there. So I was I, I bought it. I bought a tote bag there too. Um, yeah, this is probably very boring to people who are like, Paris, but what did, did you not go to the Eiffel Tower? Did you not do uh, Versailles? I did all those things before. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, this is a movie podcast, yeah, so you got to talk about podcast. the movie spots. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited just to like hang out at coffee shops, eat pastries, eat croissants and have coffee. I drink so much coffee while I was there. <laughs> um, other movie related things I did, I did a, a walking tour of Montmartre, which is where like a lot of artists lived at the time, like during the height of 
sort of the French, uh, like just the head of art. Yeah, that whole period. Yeah. Vincent van Gogh lived there at one point. Um, And it's also where Amélie takes place. And on our walking tour, they made a point of pointing out all the settings and locations of where Amélie was filmed, which was very cool. Um, Yeah, great, great trip. I had a lot of fun. I ate way too much. (laughs) I drank way too much. That sounds absolutely delightful, HD. I'm planning a big Italy trip um, Mm. later in the year. So I'm like... You know, uh, I'm trying to live vicariously through you until I can, you know, go on this trip of my own. So, uh, yeah, that I sounds will awesome. post pictures at some point. I have a lot of them and they'll go on my Instagram, too. Awesome. Uh, OK, so let's go into what we've been reading. I recently read Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandela. H.J., have you ever read this book? I know of the HBO series. Is this the book that it's based on? It is. Yes. Um, I heard such good things. I mean, even before... Um, the HBO Max adaptation came out. I think my wife and I had a copy of this book just because I'd been hearing such good things about it for a long time. I think it came out in 2014 was when it was originally published. Uh, and this book is about a pandemic. And, you know, this it's way worse than the pandemic that we're in where like most of the world has been killed off. And um, just the, the fact that the HBO Max show came out when it did sort of like it was filming while the pandemic uh, broke out, just like super weird timing of all that. And reading the book now, one of our writers, um, Valerie Ettenhofer, was telling me in in Slack that she actually started reading this book like right before the pandemic uh, began. And the opening chapters like very closely mirror what happened in our real world in terms of just like people running to the grocery stores and just like wiping things off the shelves. And like it, you know, just this sort of, eerie unsettled uh uh vibe of like knowing that this thing is um is being trans transferred by people in large spaces and just sort of like being in crowds and looking askance at people and um not really knowing what is going on and all of that and i I can't i can't imagine reading this like as the real thing was actually happening i i read it you know now thankfully things are uh way better than they were um early 2020 uh so um yeah, it was. I mean, it's a fantastic book. It's it's so well written. I I loved. This is my first um, experience reading this author's work, and uh, she has several other books that now I I'm very curious to to dive into because um, I just you know it, it's it's I love the um, the feeling of reading a book and just feeling like you're in um, you're in good hands. You know, like um, j- you can just sense the confidence in the writing and like the the way that all of the characters sort of crisscross together and it, it just feels like such um such a uh like of a piece you know a very um thought through uh work that like respects the audience and and doesn't um take any dumb shortcuts or like do anything where the characters act idiotic just to move the plot along or whatever it's a very like um you know uh, it's it's an intelligent book without being like super heady or like tough to read in any way. It's it's very um, it's a great book. So, so Station I have Eleven. Ask this as um, someone who has been kind of putting off putting the sh- watching the show just because of the times that we live in. But mm-hmm. uh, was what was reading the book in any way is just kind of almost too close to reality that you were that you felt it was a tough read. Well, yeah, in the very beginning, because it it really just like put me in this, in flashback mode of like what the early days of the pandemic were like. Um, but the the story of Station Eleven actually it begins with the early days of the pandemic and then jumps ahead twenty years. Mm-hmm. So it's more about this sort of nomadic group of 
um, performers and musicians and actors who are who are traveling the remains of the country and performing Shakespeare and um, playing music and just trying to like bring the joy of performance to the remaining survivors in the U.S. who um, you know who don't have much to celebrate because there's no electricity and you know the world is like completely different now uh, in the in the aftermath of this pandemic in the book. So um, it's it's more uplifting than just, you know, um, misery porn kind of thing. So, um, and I've heard that the, the show is very different than the book, but I think from what I've been able to glean from, you know, I, I try not to read too much about a show before I watch it just cause I, you know, maybe I'll scan a few headlines or something, but I don't ever like read reviews of a show before I watch it just cause I want to sort of form my own opinion beforehand and not be, um, too, uh, swayed either way. But, um, but yeah, the, from what I've been able to glean about the show, it, it sort of carries that same sort of hopeful message, even among, you know, some some dire imagery or whatever. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into the the show now because I've been putting it off. I wanted to read the book first, but um, yeah, Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel is the author. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. Uh, what have you been reading, HT? So I read The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, the 1969 sci-fi novel um, that uh, was her one of her biggest sci-fi hits. And Ursula K. Le Guin, if you've heard me talk about her on this podcast before, I am a big fan of. I absolutely love her Earthsea novels. I have the whole omnibus of that sort of series that she's written about it. Um, but I hadn't read any of her sci-fi works. Uh, and I was actually kind of surprised to learn at one point that she was even more famous for her sci-fi works than for her fantasy. So I was really curious just to see how her sci-fi writing held up or how it compared to what I loved about her fantasy. And um, it's similarly such just as interesting and just as complex and such as just as um, compelling as what I've loved about the Earthsea books. So Left Hand of Darkness uh, is a sort of formed as a structured as a, uh, as a sort of travelogue written from the point of view of a human from Earth um, set in some time in the far future after humanity has expanded across the stars and has formed an alliance with many planets, planets also housing other humanoid um, inhabitants. And this uh, ambassador for this alliance uh, arrives on the planet of Gethin, which is this winter-bound planet uh, that in which humanoid people live. Um, but these people are uh, uniquely, uniquely biologically structured in that they are uh, androgynous for most of the time, uh, except for a short period of time in which they uh, either take on the male or female gender. And at which point they will like copulate and, and those kind of things. Interesting. Yeah. And it was really fascinating because, um, you know, published in the 1960s, it had at the time what was a really progressive take on gender and sexuality. And a lot of it was not just about um, this character's experiences on this world, but also the character's own biases about gender um, and sex. And I thought that was really fascinating. And it's something that I think uh, Ursula K. Le Guin has sort of touched on in her earthly books too and just sort of the the um the worlds that women live in and the work that women do um and the kind of difference in terms of the gender strata and um her explicitly tackling that that 
topic in the left-handed darkness is so fascinating it's a great book it's it you know starts off as a travelogue but then it kind of forms its own narrative and becomes quite intense and epic and has a central relationship which i found myself to be very invested in you might even say it's a romance or a love story and i i quite like that so um left hand of darkness a really really great read um ursula k Le Guin does not let me down and i feel like i well there's many texts that probably go deeper into it than what i just was able to talk about but i really really enjoyed it and what it had to say about gender sexuality even if at the time even if it's sort of very um two gender approaches you know kind of uh has aged by now i think at the time it was super super progressive and it still is progressive in a lot of ways it's just a, a really great piece of, of writing awesome okay so that is uh the left hand of darkness by ursula k Le Guin. um let's get into what we've been watching hc i watched the first five episodes of a new show that is coming on hbo max this week it premieres in two days on thursday it's called tokyo vice which is uh, the first episode, which is, is directed by Michael Mann, and it is um, actually not connected at all to Miami Vice, which was the, the 1980s show that Michael Mann sort of helped, uh, you know, as one of the, uh, the big like um, creative auteurs behind, uh, and he adapted that into a movie. This has nothing to do with that. This is actually based on a um, a memoir by a guy named Jake Adelstein, and this was, pub- was published several years ago and the book um, and and the show are set in the late 90s and it is about uh, Adelstein who's this American journalist who moves to Tokyo and becomes the first foreign-born reporter at a um, major newspaper in Tokyo and he is definitely the odd man out everybody's always calling him Gaijin and and you know just sort of um, he, he really wants to uh, expose the truth and tell the truth and um, he the the story the conflict at the center of the story is about this guy who's a reporter clashing with um the the yakuza the organized criminals there and like um really butting up against the way that um that they sort of have a a stranglehold on the city and like the newspapers are kind of in on it in that like they won't write uh details about what the gangs are doing and um, he teams up with this veteran detective who is played by Ken Watanabe, who is like this, the lone figure who reminds me a lot of like a, uh, like almost like a, uh, like a John Woo kind of figure, almost like a Chow Yun fat type of character. Um, somebody who is like very much like, uh, he's an older, he's an older, f- uh, figure in this world, but he's like, definitely like the, the guy who's kind of doing his own thing and, and kind of looked down upon by the other members of the police department and all that because he's like this rogue guy and it's not like he's you know ken watanabe is dropping one-liners or anything like that it's just like he's the the sort of moral center of uh this universe and um jake adelstein who's played unfortunately by ansel elgort uh in this show um is sort of drawn to him and and the two of them um try to do what they can to sort of uncover the the links to corruption and and uh crime in the city so it's a very like uh, sleek stylish show michael mann of course brings a lot of style to it um destin daniel cretton who directed shang chi uh is one of the executive producers of the show he was originally going to direct some of it i don't think he ended up doing that but um they got several other directors to sort of jump in here and um really the the show like the first couple episodes are more journalism based than uh you know like action heavy like gang kind of shootout stuff um which i was surprisingly 
I, I was pleased by because it, it really felt more like all the president's men or something instead of, um, yeah, like, you know, just sort of a typical like shoot them up kind of vibe. Uh, but then as the show moves on, and I think there's supposed to be eight episodes in this first season, I've only seen the first five, but as the show progresses, it sort of um, expands its scope a little bit and you you really start the show through this Ansel Elgort character, this Jake Adelstein journalist figure. But really by the time episode five rolls around, you're following multiple stories with multiple um, sort of uh, protagonist figures that you're following and, and tracking. And um, there's this woman who is uh, an American expat who's living there. And, and she is basically like working as this hostess who wants to, uh, get away from the sort of sleazeball guy that owns the club that she works at and she wants to start her own place and she butts up against the the Yakuza people and she's played by Rachel Keller who you might remember from one of the seasons of Fargo um, so yeah there are several like uh, key figures in this world and the show is like kind of interesting it's it's a little slow um, Ken Watanabe is doing great work Ansel Elgort I mean there's this whole like swirling controversy that we talked about around West Side Story when with him and he I don't know he he does like uh, suck the life out of the show a little bit just because every time <laughs> he's on the, the screen I'm kind of like I can't help but think about that a little bit and I just wish that you know somebody else was in that lead role um, but uh, Ken Watanabe almost makes it worth watching you know just for for him. So I don't know. I, I feel like this is very much a vibe show. Um, you know, if you're, if you want to like dive into uh seedy underworlds and, um, you know, stylish sort of neon soaked nights and, and all that kind of stuff, then um, Tokyo Vice might be for you. Uh, otherwise, if you're just like completely, you know, allergic to Ansel Elgort or, um, you know, if this sounds too, uh, too sort of by the book, then, um, then yeah, you may want to tap out of this one. But um Anyway, it premieres, uh, like I said, April 7th on HBO Max, if you want to check that out. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, oh, Aisha, uh, have you seen any of Our Flag Means Death yet? I haven't seen it, but I've seen it everywhere on Twitter. And I was wondering what was going on where everyone was suddenly obsessed with the show. And I know Taika Waititi yeah. has a wig slash beard. <laughs> yeah, he plays Blackbeard in the show. And he, I think, is one of the executive producers of it. Um, David Jenkins created the show. It's a, a pirate comedy series that is on HBO Max as well. It, it premiered uh, early last month. And um, I think it's already run through the entirety of its first season. And like people love it. So um, I was intrigued by it. I wanted to watch it. But just seeing the, um, the outpouring of support for the show really made it like made me slide it up in my um, list of things to watch and I've seen the first three episodes right now my wife like really loves the show she's like uh, you know all in on it and um, I, I like it a lot too it's so funny and and really uh, sweet and goofy and um, you know it's the kind of show where like uh, Fred Armisen pops up as the bartender in like a a Tortuga-esque like pirate town uh, and this like, you know, skeezy bar. He's, he's just like the goofy bartender who's, um, you know, who's there who always like puts a, a smile on your face. So uh, yeah, Steve Bonnet is, is the main character in the show. He, he's like the, um, he's, he was an actual pirate in 17, early 1700s. He was an aristocrat who abandoned his family uh, and, and tried to, prove himself as a pirate according to wikipedia and uh reese darby plays him and he's so good he's so funny he, he basically tries to be become a uh, a gentleman pirate he's like a guy who's clearly not cut out for the work of 
murder and uh, raping and pillaging and all the stuff that you would normally associate with pirates. Um, but the yeah, Taika Waititi plays Blackbeard and those two characters are sort of at odds for the first couple episodes. And um, yeah, it's, it's just like very funny, very uh, well done. I mean, some of the um, the visual effects are a little, <laughs> a little shaky because you can tell that they shot it on the big on this big like pirate ship, but like the you know there's some green screen work going on. They're not actually out on the open ocean all the time, and uh, some of it's a little bit dodgy. But um, but yeah, the the character work is so strong, and the the humor is so good throughout that it's it's definitely worth uh, it was worth my time anyway for the first three episodes. So I'm I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to to um, catching up with. I think there's been let's see, there were. 10 episodes in in season one so yeah it's already already done but um yeah i feel like yeah. it exploded in popularity in the last just like two weeks or so uh, at the end of its run i don't and i was surprised because i remember it premiering and it really not having much of an impact and then suddenly everyone's talking about it yeah yeah i think it. i wonder how much of that had to do with the fact that like taika was not really in the first couple episodes he was like alluded to or sort of seen in shadows and then like right around episode three i think is when he um you know comes into it a little bit more and i'm guessing that's probably because he's very busy and and uh you know i think he's he becomes a more central figure as the show uh, progresses and and he is like so uh, such a charismatic performer that i'm guessing that that may have something to do with it but yeah the, the show is just really really good so uh that's called our flag means death it's on hbo max right now and then quickly i just wanted to mention that i caught up with this movie called bad day at black rock which came out in 1955 it is uh, a really cool, like modern Western, well, then modern Western, directed by John Sturgis. And Spencer Tracy stars in it as this guy who rolls into this really um, isolated Western small town and he's looking for somebody. And everyone in the town is hostile toward him and does not like the idea that there's a stranger here. And it's very clear that they are hiding something. And it's this you're you're left to wonder what is going on for like really almost half the movie or something trying to figure out like why exactly is he here what is he trying to do what are they hiding exactly um and i just thought the the script uh, which was written by don mcguire and millard kaufman was excellent super like um tightly constructed and uh the performances are all great robert ryan plays a bad guy and people like ernest borgnine and lee marvin are in this in small roles so um it's got a really really good cast of like uh you know 1950s tough guys basically and then spencer tracy who i know primarily from like the spencer tracy and audrey hepburn comedies um tracy does a really good job here he's not really like playing that uh you know sort of like yuck it up comedic figure he's like this uh like hard-nosed um, almost like a, a private detective figure, like rolling Ooh, into this really. Tracy as a hard nosed detective. Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like that. He he rolls in and he just like doesn't take. He he um he. You can tell that he's in control of these situations. These guys are constantly like kneeling him, trying to get him to to um fight back or like go too far, and he's just like you know cool, calm, and collected. And and uh, at one point he um he sort of like lets loose and you're like, Oh man, Spencer Tracy, like going to town on a couple of guys in a bar fight. So this is, this is pretty rad, but um, yeah, I just, I really, really like this movie a lot. So it's called bad day at black rock. If you have the chance to check it out, highly recommend it. It's um, it looks like it's, it's only available for rent right now and for like $3 on all the, the usual suspects, but I, it's well worth $3. It's like one of the better um, neo Westerns that I've ever seen, I think. So uh, yeah. 
good stuff there. Um, HJ, I know you've been watching a lot of stuff, so sorry for, for going so long, but uh, tell me what you've been catching up with. No worries. I'll try to go through fast. But uh, first, Ben, my thoughts have been kind of consumed for the past couple of weeks by one show that I haven't even fully caught up with yet. But I, I fully blame one of our writers, Shania Russell, who wrote this great piece on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and the chemistry between uh, the characters Midge Maisel and Lenny Bruce, who is in fact based off of the real life comedian. And uh, this is a show uh, created by Amy Sherman Palladino that I had watched the first season of and I thought this was fun and then I never caught up with it. Um, I have I had really liked Luke Kirby's performance as uh, Lenny Bruce. I thought that he was one of the few sort of real, real sparks of the show, but he was a recurring guest star for the first two seasons. And then from what I hear of the of um, sort of reaction to his character is that he became so popular and his chemistry with um, Rachel Brosnahan's main character, Mitch Maisel, was so apparent that they started to lengthen his time and uh, his screen time on the show and uh, his his dynamic and with uh, Mitch Maisel. And um, basically, I'm obsessed. You're <laughs> I'm shipping obsessed with, it. I'm obsessed with Luke Kirby specifically, but also with um, the the romance between um, Mitch with Midge Maisel and Lenny Bruce, which is so funny to me that it wasn't intended as a romance at all to begin with, but now has become an unintentional, really well done slow burn romance across like four seasons. <laughs> and um, basically the last season, um, it kind of culminated in an actual romantic uh, moment between the two of them. And I was so excited after reading Shania's writing about it to like get to that point that I've been catching up with the show, uh, which has its ups and downs. I've never been a big fan of Amy Sherman Palladino's work. Um, I watched a couple couple seasons of Gilmore Girls, but kind of fell off of that too. Um, but um, I do actually find a lot to enjoy in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's a, a show, if you haven't heard of it, on Amazon Prime Video about a 1950s, 1960s housewife um, who is the perfect Jewish housewife until her whole world gets blown up after her, her husband leaves her and reveals that he's been cheating on her with the secretary. And uh, in a drunken stupor, she heads down to a comedy club and accidentally gives off a rave, a hilarious uh, comedy, stand-up comedy bit, uh, performance and gets discovered and uh, kind of has to, figures out how to um, balance her house, what her initial plans were as a housewife to, with her burgeoning comedy career. And it's actually, it's quite fun. It has its ups and downs, but um, Luke Kirby as Lenny Bruce really is one of the highlights and he just shows up for like two episodes and then disappears. Uh, but yeah, I've, they've been consuming my whole, my whole uh, brain for the past couple of weeks. Um, and I think it maybe it's because I'm star for, for some good slow burn mutual pining romances because uh, it's, it's very, very little nuggets, but it's really, really delivering whenever they two, the two of them show up on screen together because they just crackle in a way mm. that like very few even more explicit romances do. And uh, I have been a little bit obsessed with them. It's fine. But anyways, <laughs> that's basically why I've been watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I'm a real – I'm a fangirl at heart, guys. I'm very sorry. Uh, I want to jump in real quick. And I don't know if you know this because I think it debuted when you were in Paris. But mm -hmm. um, the second season of Starstruck is out on HBO Max. I'm okay. so excited. I've been, like, saving it up. <laughs> yeah, me too. I haven't watched it yet. But uh, I just wanted to make sure – because I know that you and I were, were big fans of that first season. So I just wanted to make sure that was on yeah, your radar. That's also, like, a good, good – like mutual pining slow burn romance I've been really enjoying as well. I just 
a great Notting Hill riff, which I think for this most recent season, they do like an explicit Notting Hill riff in this oh, wow. one like scene where he walks through all the seasons. So <laughs> I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, romance. It's not dead, guys. Speaking of romance not being dead, I also watched um, The Lost City starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. A, lo- a fun screwball comedy. It's harmless fun, very silly, very absurd movie with Daniel Radcliffe stealing the show as a character who feels like Daniel Radcliffe was was <laughs> basically took uh, was doing drugs like right before they hit <laughs> they they called action and was just completely off the rails the entire time. Chan Tatum is at his himbo best. Sandra Bullock is our screwball queen. Uh, fun movie, fun time at the theaters. Is Daniel Radcliffe doing a Jesse Plemons and Jungle Cruise kind of thing here? Or is it like, you know, when you described his energy, that's the first thing that came to mind. I think maybe just because we don't really get movies like The Lost City very much mm-hmm. anymore. And um, Jungle Cruise sounded like a, a modern comp to me, even though I think from everything that I've seen, it's much more indebted to something like Romancing the Stone than, than you know, last year's Jungle Cruise or whatever. But yeah. um, Velocity is... Very, very close to Romancing the Stone, almost to the point where you wonder if they should be giving them copyright or something. But um, <laughs> I haven't actually seen Jungle Cruise yet. Okay. Despite having oh my gone God. to the set visit for it. But one of the you would love Jesse Plemons in that movie. He's so absurd. It's it's he's in an entirely different movie in a way. Him and Paul Giamatti are doing something that like the, the movie. I did not I did not like the movie. I'll just say that. But uh, but their work in it is nothing if not memorable. And um, <laughs> I think with the way that you like to embrace chaos, sometimes you would really latch onto their performances in that film. I, I'll check it out at some point. Um, it, it's a plain <laughs> movie, if anything. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well. But um, before I get to my plane movies, I also watched Aileen, a film that I watched. Um, my review will be coming out uh, on Slash Film sometime this week. Also, you can check out my review for The Lost City on Slash Film. Um, but this is the unofficial biopic of Celine Dion um, in which they oh, managed to yes. get the rights to Celine Dion's songs, but not the rights to her life, um, despite the the movie being basically a very strict just kind of telling of Celine Dion's life, just not about Celine Dion. It's about a character named uh, Eline Dieu. Uh, ridiculous movie. One of the most bizarre movies I've ever seen. Because um, this is the movie <laughs> where the the main character, this woman who's what, like 40 or 50 years old or something, plays... I think, yes. <laughs> she plays the same character as a child, but like not aged down, right? No, like she's... She, she plays <laughs> the same character, the, the character as a child to adulthood. And you see the first time we see her is as like a five-year-old girl. <laughs> and she uses digital de-aging technology to paste her face onto the body of a five-year-old girl. And it looks like some sort of malformed hobbit. And you're like, what is this film? I'm watching a horror movie. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's a, it just has so many bizarre choices. Um, things just keep happening at a relentless pace, but there's no narrative uh, tension or conflict. It's it's strange. It's bizarre. It's not a well-made film. Okay, so that's uh, Aileen, and and that comes out I think this weekend in theater, or maybe this Friday. This week, yes. Okay. Okay, and the last are my three plane watches. I watched Old, the M Night Shyamalan movie where the beach makes you old. Uh, I have no re- uh, reaction except for. Good fun movie. You know, I don't really have a strong opinion about M. Night Shyamalan. I know a lot of people are either hate him or love him. I just think that he doesn't have 
a talent for writing dialogue that sound like they're written, they're spoken by people. <laughs> but other than that, I enjoy his filmmaking for the most part. And uh, old was fun. Um, I also watched Last Night in Soho, uh, which I just I got a, somehow missed the entire time like it was in theaters uh the new edgar wright film and um i think that it's it's so stylish and has so many cool ideas but the ending kind of um flubs the entire thing in a way that i think is mm, not as as edgy as i think wright and his team might have thought it to be mm. so i was not a big fan of the ending but i did like matt smith anya taylor joy think they were fantastic i think this is the one movie to really know how to utilize matt smith as an actor um he's been poorly utilized by hollywood in general so just he needs a better agent um (laughs) on killer joy completely magical in everything that she does uh mackenzie i want to say oh what's her name shoot um uh yeah i'm blanking on it as well um um, thomas and mackenzie yes always excellent actually i remember really liking her ever since i saw her in um uh, leave no trace and she's she's so, she's very charming here she's, she does the job but yeah last night in soho kind of disappointed in it i think that it has some cool ideas going on but doesn't really execute those ideas very well i think that's fair and lastly uh barb and star go to visa del mar after you guys bullied me for so long <laughs> i watched it good fun jamie jordan sings a song very silly very fun that's, that's all I it have to say. wow okay all right <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I mean, I, I guess that's what, it, yeah. that's what we get for bullying you. Um, you know, sometimes expectations can be set too We're high. Long so. Ben, so yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, okay. Well, yeah. W- what a joyous, ridiculous, stupid in the best way movie that is. But um, okay. What have you been eating, HT? I know you mentioned that you went to France, you ate a bunch of stuff, you drank a bunch of stuff. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to shout out? Oh, oh what did I want to shout out in particular? I ate these delicious oysters in Normandy, uh, fresh out the sea. They tasted like the sea. It was amazing. So much so that I wanted to have oysters the next day. And I thought, no, I should not have oysters. I had them already <laughs> the day before. But I basically did the checklist of all the things to eat in France or to like especially have in France, um, all of which I luckily I love. I had escargot. I had pâté. I had foie gras. One thing that I really surprised uh i was really surprised about liking was that this japanese restaurant that i can't remember the name of but it was a sushi restaurant uh which had a foie gras teriyaki sauce appetizer and it was incredible it was two those a flavor combination that i wouldn't expect to like but it was maybe one of the best things i ate when i was in paris which is interesting because it was a fusion thing um it was incredible what where was it i can't remember it was um uh yeah, I'm not going to remember the name of the, the restaurant. I'm very sorry. Um, it was it was great. If you check out, if you look for sushi restaurants, it was near the Lafayette Plaza, which is this big shopping center um, in sort of central. Uh, what what R&D small is is one of it's one of the central places, but um, uh, you you'll find it. <laughs> Awesome. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I just love that you're uh, finally able to like come in here and give Brad a run for his money because normally he just runs the table in this section. But um, <laughs> we, you actually had the opportunity to like partake in some things that, uh, you know, aren't traditional for you. So that's great. No, it was it was, am- it was amazing. Um, I definitely did bring a bunch of foie gras and pate home in cans. Uh, I stuffed them all in my suitcase and checked it in. So 
it was a very heavy suitcase. It's actually funny because I, I, my mom did this one time where she came back from Paris and I was bringing her suitcase in and I was like, why is your suitcase so heavy? And I opened it and there were no clothes inside. It was just cans of pate. <laughs> I did the same oh, thing. Man. That's the way to go. Uh, awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you back, HD. I'm glad that uh, that we had a chance to chat here today. And I think that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. You can find more about some of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.